Uh, we're, thank you. That's always, that's a, that's a great start. A little applause. Uh, what we're going to do every night this week uh, is we're looking at five things that human beings can't live without. Uh, we're looking at, uh, last night, meaning, tonight, satisfaction, freedom, identity, and hope. We can't live without those things. And Christianity, I'm arguing, not only explains why we need those things, but supplies uh, those needs, arguably in ways that are better than any other view. That's, that's what I'm arguing right now. And uh, one question came up last night, which is actually a great question. Even if what I'm showing you, uh, Christianity offers, is a very powerful thing, if you find it compelling, if it resonates, you say, boy, that would be great. But then the question comes up, but how do you even know Christianity is true? Uh, let me say a couple things about that. Actually, Osgenis tomorrow at noon or at lunch here in this spot is going to be talking about truth. How do you know? How can you, how can you be sure of anything? Uh, I'm not going to be in the evening talks directly saying, here are the arguments for why Christianity is true. The fact, of course, is that uh, there's no comprehensive view of things. Whether you're a secular person or a Buddhist or a Christian, there's no comprehensive view of things that can be demonstrably proved in one, uh, uh, what we call in America, some slam dunk argument that everybody agrees must be true. Uh, in some ways you can't prove anything, finally, right? Didn't you see the matrix? There's no proof that you aren't in a vat somewhere with plugs coming out of the back of your head. There's no proof. There's no way to know that. And yet, you can come to understand truth, but it's never through one uh, demonstrable argument. It's accumulatively. Uh, there's rational arguments. There's personal arguments. There's even social arguments. You see how it works itself out in people's lives. Cumulatively, you can come, I believe, to, definitely to the assurance that Christianity is true. I'm not going to necessarily be unpacking all of those arguments in the evening I am going to be each night, though, showing you a reason why you ought to be trying to find out if it's true. I'm going to try to be motivating you to take the time and even be patient. I think a lot of folks in places like Oxford or Manhattan, where I'm from, uh, won't sit still to even think about the reasons why Christianity might be true because they say it doesn't offer me anything. That's just not true. It offers you the things I'm mentioning tonight and, and every night this week. And uh, these things are actually compelling. And in some ways, they also provide some argument for the truth of Christianity, as I'm going to show you. They resonate so deeply, you begin to ask the question, well, uh, if they resonate this deeply, maybe that's telling us something about the nature of things. Tonight, I want to talk about satisfaction. And I want to read to you from a passage of the Bible. I'm not going to unpack all of this. Uh, it's John chapter 6, verse 25 to 35. Uh, if, you're, if you have enough light to read it, it you're, you're sitting on um, a uh, piece of literature that has this text in it. I'm not going to be unpacking it tonight. I'm going to be referring to it. Uh, there's some themes in here that I think will shed light on our topic. Uh, this is John chapter 6, verse 25 to 35. Jesus answered, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him, God the Father has placed a seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, 
What sign then will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. It's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. First of all, I'd like you to see that there's such a thing as spiritual hunger. I'd like you to think with me about the reality of spiritual hunger. Uh, Jesus uses a metaphor. It's clearly a metaphor. He says, uh, he says, God offers you the bread of life, the bread from heaven. And it's a metaphor in a couple of ways. One is, uh, in those days, people usually didn't have meat for a meal. Only the rich people had meat all the time. You and I tend to think of meat as the, as the center of the meal. Actually, for most people, bread was. Bread was the thing that kept you on your feet. And that's the reason why in ancient times, uh, bread was a metaphor for life itself and certainly for strength. But for the Jews who knew the account from the book of Exodus that when they were on their way to the promised land and in the wilderness, uh, the book of Exodus says that God every morning sent manna. Manna was, uh, looked like frost on the ground, but it could be gathered up and turned into a kind of cakes or a, a form of bread, and it was very sweet. And so when Jesus says, God gives you the bread of heaven, He's talking metaphorically about something that is both powerful, because it gives you strength, and pleasant. It's a delight. Power and pleasure. It's a metaphor for what could only be called spiritual fulfillment, spiritual uh, satisfaction. Uh, maybe you could say spiritual contentment. He says, God offers that. But then he says in verse 27, do not work for food that spoils. For food that endures to eternal life is what you will need, but don't work for food that spoils. Now, Jesus is extending the metaphor and saying, most of us, maybe all of us, are seeking that spiritual satisfaction, contentment, and fulfillment in, in things that will disappoint us. Maybe not right away. Food that spoils doesn't mean it spoils immediately. But food that spoils is Jesus' metaphorical way for saying that there's a spiritual hunger we all have, there's a desire for fulfillment and contentment that we all have and that we look for it in the wrong places. We expect things to give it to us that in the end we dis discover it spoils, that is, it disappoints us. Um, and so let me put the thesis like this because this is the thesis I'm gonna be testing with you tonight. We all have a desire for something that when you're young, you don't even recognize it as such. You're looking for something beyond the things that ordinary life can give you. When you're young, you're pretty sure that if I get the right love partner, if I get the right spouse, if I get the right career, if I make some money, if, I, if this and that is, if, if these things happen in the future, I'm going to live a satisfied life. And you don't realize, and it takes quite a number of years in many cases to find out, that there's something I'm actually looking for in those experiences that I assume is inherent in the experiences and it's not. 
You're looking for something that the experiences will never be able to give it to you. They'll never be able to give it to you because they spoil, as it were. And as a result, as the years go by, you will find out you're a lot less happy than you think you are. That, you're, that you, you will learn how deeply discontent you really are. That the things that you thought certainly are going to satisfy me, certainly going to fill me up, certainly going to give me a sense that, that uh, you know, I'm content with life, they're not going to be able to do it. And then you're going to begin to see, I am spiritually hungry. If you don't know you're spiritually hungry right now, it's because you don't recognize the spiritual hunger as for what it is. It's because you naively think that things out there, ordinary life is going to give you those things. It won't. That's Jesus' thesis. That's my thesis. Now, um, there's a lot of testimonies to what I'm about to tell you, and I, I don't just take it from me. Uh, there's the, you know, the well-known classical writer Horace, who simply said this, no one lives content. Wallace Stevens, I'm just jumping around the centuries here. The writer Wallace Stevens says, in contentment, I still feel the need of some imperishable bliss. See, there we go. He's beginning, this is a little phenomenological uh, uh, description of what I'm talking about. He says, even in contentment, I feel the need for some imperishable bliss. As he's content in a, in a situation, we're in an experience, he immediately realizes I'm not going to be able to hold on to it and immediately begins to turn sour, begins to spoil. The fact that he knows he won't be able to keep it begins to make him long for something that he can keep. Or, uh, you know, Henrik Ibsen, you know, the Norwegian uh, playwright, has an interesting place. He actually uses this, uh, talks about this in more than one place. He says, when you take away the life lie of anyone, they lose all their happiness. And if you, if you ask Ibsen scholars, what is the life lie? He talks about that in a number of places. Uh, the life lie, according to Ibsen, is the lie that this or this or this is actually going to make you happy because nothing will. That's the life lie. In other words, you assume that you'll feel secure, you'll feel valuable, you'll feel worthwhile if you get this or this or this. And at some point, life will take away your life lie and then you'll be distraught. Uh, many years ago, uh, when I first moved to New York City, I used to read the Village Voice a lot. It's sort of a hip downtown, uh, left-wing uh, uh, paper. Certainly tells you a lot about what's happening in New York. Lots of great commentary. But there was a woman who used to write for it named Cynthia Heimel. And Cynthia Heimel was a, a, a columnist that lived in New York for many years. She lives in L.A. now. But the, uh, uh, she knew a number of people who were trying to make it in show business, uh, she, she actually mentioned some of the names. I'm not going to, I think to be discreet, I'm not going to mention who they are. But she says, I knew a number of people, and she's writing in the 1980s actually, uh, who when they were working as the hat check, uh, uh, the, behind the cosmetic counts, uh, counter at Macy's or a guy who was a bouncer for a, uh, a local club, and then they made it in show business, and now they're, they're, uh, they're big celebrities. Here's what she says about them. She noticed something about all of them because she knew them before and knew them after they were successful. And she writes this. She says, that giant thing that they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened 
and nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. Now she's referring to the fact that people who thought, if I get that, if I make it in Hollywood, if I become uh, an actor or an actress who gets $20 million for, an, for a movie, then everything will be fine. And she says, when they discovered that they were still them, the disillusionment made them actually considerably angrier, nastier people than they were before. Uh, she goes on about that. It's a little catty, but she's probably right. And then she says, last thing she says, I believe that if God really wants to play a rotten practical joke on us, he grants our deepest wish and then giggles merrily as we begin to realize we want to kill ourselves. By the way, she's not a Christian writer, but that is profoundly biblical. If God really wants to play a rotten practical joke on us, he grants our deepest wish and then he giggles merrily as we suddenly realize or eventually realize we want to kill ourselves. The thing that was going to make everything right, and it didn't. And you know, if you hear me saying this, and you're a young Oxford student, and you say, yeah, yeah, I've heard about all these disillusioned Hollywood people and billionaires, and you know, their, their life isn't happy, and not me, I'll be different. No, you won't. You won't be different. Nobody ever has been different. And if you were able to grasp that now, that deep disappointment awaits you that the things you're sure are going to make you happy, you're sure are going to fulfill you, will not. And if you knew that right now, it would change the course of your life. I'm trying to help that happen, by the way, right now. <laughs> and, of course, that's Cynthia Heimel. And, by the way, one other thing to do. Go onto YouTube sometime. Find Peggy Lee, 1969, singing, Is That All, that, is that all There Is? It's classic. And it's based on a Thomas Mann novella called Disillusionment. Basically, the song is about a woman who goes through life thinking, if, I, if I'm in love, then everything will be fine. And, and then at the end, she says, is that all there is to love? It didn't satisfy me. And she goes through and she says, there's always something missing. And finally, um, the song goes like this. She says, I suppose you're wondering why, if I feel this way about life, I don't just end it all. And I've thought about it, except I'm almost positive that death is going to be every bit as disappointing as life. So I'm, there's no reason to hurry to get that done. And essentially, uh, it's, a, it's a terrific song explaining what Cynthia Heimel says, what Horace says, what Ibsen says, what I'm saying. And that is uh, this, except I have a local lad who made good eventually, a guy named C.S. Lewis, who actually put it in the most, perhaps, um, classic way. In, uh, in his uh, BBC radio talk on hope, I think it is, that chapter, he says this. This is summing, summing up the whole thing. Most people, if they really learned how to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or trips and so on. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There is always something we grasp that in that first moment of longing that just fades away in the reality. The spouse may be a good spouse. The scenery has been excellent. 
It has turned out to be a good job. But it, capital I-T, it has evaded us. So the thesis is it. You're looking for it, and it takes usually a number of years to even realize you're looking for it. You think, I just want to live life. That's all. I just want to live life. No. You're looking for something that ordinary life can't give you, that life actually can't give you. And you don't realize how discontent you are. You don't really understand how deep the desires of your heart are. You don't know how deep your heart goes. And the things you think are going to satisfy it won't. Now, the second thing I'd like to talk to you about more briefly are I'd like to give you seven strategies that people um, take with their spiritual hunger. There's seven ways to uh, go about handling your spiritual hunger. There's basically two ways, but I'm going to break each one down into four categories and three. There, there's two ways. You can either decide when you begin to experience disappointment, you can either begin to decide that it is still out there. I haven't gotten it yet, but it's still out there. Or you may decide it doesn't exist. There's four things to do uh, on the way to... Um, if, if you think it is out there, there's, there's really four categories of, of strategy for spiritual hunger. I already gave you one. I call it the young strategy. The young strategy is to say, well, I, is to not know you're unhappy. Think you're just getting ready to be happy because if you just, if you, you know, dot your I's and cross your T's, if you uh, do well here, you get a good job, uh, you, you, you play your cards right, that... Uh, you actually are unhappy, you just don't recognize it. You just feel like, well, of course I'm unhappy. I haven't gotten out there to do all the things that I'm going to do. And so I call that the young and naive approach, is not to even recognize how uh, spiritually hungry you are. Uh, that will change. The second approach is what I call the angry approach. As you start to move out in life and you begin to realize that I'm not getting it, one of the things to do is to blame the things that are you might call barriers. For example, if you are the, uh, if you're the victim of prejudice or discrimination, uh, if, if you are in a society that is not uh, uh, open to a lot of the things that you want to do, uh, or if there are individuals actually who have uh, wronged you, if you get into business, for example, and uh, your partner uh, uh, basically betrays you, you did it on a handshake, you didn't sign a contract, the partner does something and ruins you and you have no recourse. In other words, there's all kinds of things that can make you pretty unhappy. And instead of assuming that it is not out there or it is out there, you just assume everything would be fine if it wasn't for him or for her or for that or for this policy. And so you become an activist or you become, you know, you become a vigilante and you go after the person. In other words, you get angry and that kind of gives you meaning in life for a while. It's even kind of satisfying, by the way. It gives you some satisfaction until eventually you break through that barrier and you have the freedom to get the job and you find it is not there. A third strategy, besides the young and naive and the angry strategy, a third strategy is, I guess, what you call the driven strategy. Actually, C.S. Lewis talks about that in his radio talk in that chapter in Mere Christianity on Hope, where he says, you just assume that even though I haven't found it yet, I, I, gotta, I need to get rid of this spouse and get a better spouse. I need to get rid of this job and get a better job. I need to get rid of this house and get a better house. And you assume it's still out there, and so you just go through houses and spouses and jobs and lives assured that the next time I do this, it's going to come. So you're driven. You're frantic. 
the fourth approach is despair. <laughs> because you decide you blame yourself. Uh, when you don't find it out there, very often, I mean, some people get angry and some people get frantic, but a lot of people begin to beat themselves up. And they say, there's something wrong with me. I haven't done well enough. I haven't gone far enough up the job ladder. I haven't, I haven't, uh, and, and it, uh, nobody loves me and nobody wants to date me and something's wrong with me. I'm ugly, I'm stupid, I, you know, I have personal hygiene problems. And you get mad at yourself. Uh, actually, Francis Spufford, who's written a uh, British writer, has written a hilarious book called Unapologetic. Uh, and he has a place where he says this. He says, most people, it takes a number of years to realize what he calls, quote, the human tendency not just to lurch and stumble and screw up by accident, but our active inclination to break stuff. Human beings have an active inclination to break stuff. Stuff here, including promises, relationships we care about to break our own well-being and other people's as well as material objects whose high gloss positively seems to invite a big fat scratch. He says you can get quite a long way through adult life without recognizing your active tendency to break things. But then the realization comes at one of those classic moments of adult failure when your marriage ends, when a career stalls or crumbles. It doesn't have to be dramatic though. And you're lying in the bath and you notice you're 39 and the way you've been living scarcely bears any resemblance to what you thought you always wanted and yet you realize you got there by a long series of choices. Uh, what he's trying to say is that sometimes the response to not finding it, you start to hate yourself. You start to get depressed. You might get suicidal. So some people say, it is still out there, but I haven't found it. Naive, angry, frantic, despondent. Well, some people finally, though, realize maybe it doesn't exist. I want something that just isn't there. It's imaginary. It's, it's wrong. There's three things you could do with that. And in some ways, all three of them seem to be an improvement, but I'm not sure they are in the end. There's the altruistic way. There are many people who say, uh, I thought it was something I would find in, in uh, acquisition and in success and in getting things, and now I realize it is not in things. And so you become altruistic. That is, you start to... Uh, you know, you become a social activist, or you become a, an advocate for the poor, or you just lose yourself in doing good. You lose yourself in works of charity or justice. Charles Taylor, by the way, Canadian philosopher, has written uh, a great book, A Secular Age, talks about the fact that if you do that, if you say, I'm, a I'm actually going to find myself by caring for other people, he actually says that... Uh, that, that very often can lead to despising the poor. You have to have a tremendous amount of in, internal contentment in order to go out there and help needy people. Taylor says, if you don't, if you try to find it, if you try to find satisfaction or contentment through helping other people, you'll come to despise them because they are hard to help. People don't want to be helped. And you'll end up becoming incredibly paternalistic and despising the very people that you're supposed to be helping because it's an incredible drain. It doesn't really work. A third, uh, pardon me, another possibility, people say, okay, it's not out there, and they just become, and this is what I think, your average British, sophisticated, secular person over the age of 45, this is, this is what this person gets. The person says, yes, when I was younger, I thought it was out there, and now, of course, I've grown up. 
I realize uh, nobody is ever satisfied. Nobody's ever content. Uh, I've stopped chasing rainbows. I've, start cry, start, start, I've stopped crying after the moon. And I just realize, you know, nothing really is uh, all that satisfying. And I pretty much have to kind of live for myself. There's two problems with that, and they're severe. One is that almost always creates a certain amount of pride and self-righteousness. The cynics, the sophisticated person, the person that's sort of hardened their hearts, very often they are very condescending toward other people, incredibly condescending. Uh, anybody who seems to be happy, they just laugh at, they scoff at. But worse than that is if you decide the thing I'm trying to get, the fulfillment, the meaning, the contentment, the joy, the happiness I'm trying to get, it's just not there, and you harden your heart against it, you are dehumanizing yourself. I mean, what makes you a, a human being and not an animal <laughs> is that you want those things. It's what makes you a human being and not an animal is that you want love and you want meaning and you want satisfaction. And there's one last category, which we won't give enough time to, and that is what both Eastern religion and the old Greek Stoics and many of the Greek philosophers did. And they said, the reason why we're always unhappy is because we attach our heart to things, so you detach. Buddhism actually has a version of this, Stoicism. The old Stoicism was a version of this. Is the reason why you're so unhappy, you want it because you, you attach your heart to things, and then you lose those things. So don't love anything too much. Just detach. Remind yourself that everything, everything is, is, is changing, and you'll, and you'll never be satisfied anywhere. That, even though that's got a, a much better philosophical pedigree than just the cynic, the sophisticated cynic that sneers at everything, that also hardens your heart. I think that also dehumanizes you. And so you see, here's where we are. You want something that nothing in this life can give you. If you try to, to harden your heart so that it doesn't bother you, you dehumanize yourself. And so we get down to this very, very famous place in that uh, chapter by C.S. Lewis where he says this. So a duckling wants to swim, there's such a thing as water. A baby wants to suck, there's such a thing as milk. And if I find in myself a longing which this world cannot meet, then it's probably, it probably means that I was made for another world. Elsewhere, C.S. Lewis says, how could an idiotic universe have produced creatures whose mere dreams are so much stronger and better and subtler than itself? Do fish complain of the sea for being wet? Or if they did, would that fact itself not strongly suggest that they had not always been or would not always be purely aquatic creatures? And if you are really the product of a materialistic universe, how is it that you don't feel at home here? See, it's a strong indication that we've got a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, and you will find that out. And if you don't, if you don't harden your heart and destroy your desire for this it, uh, and dehumanize yourself, you're going to be basically saying, like Peggy Lee, is this all there is? And of course, the biblical answer is no. Now, what is the solution? What is the Christian solution to this? Briefly, an analysis, and then finally, the actual offer. An analysis, the best analysis I know of is the great writer, Christian theologian, St. Augustine. And St. Augustine says that the reason why we have the discontent we have is because our loves are disordered. 
Augustine says, what really makes you what you are is not so much what you believe, and not so much what you think, not even so much what you do, but it's what you love, especially what you love most. See, the Stoic and the Buddhist says, your problem is you love things, detach. Augustine says, no, the problem is you don't love the most important things most and the least important things least and the middle things middle. You love things you shouldn't live, love uh, most least, the things you should love most least and the things you should love least most. So for example, he says loves are disordered. If you love your career more than your family, you'll destroy your family because your love is disordered. There's nothing wrong with loving your career but not out of order. If you love making money more than you love justice, then you'll exploit your workers because your loves are out of order. There's nothing wrong with loving making money, actually, but not in that order. And if you love your children more than you love God, you will smother them with your expectations, you'll drive them away, you'll crush them because they will be the source you think of all your happiness, and they won't be. And what Augustine says is we were made by a tripersonal God, a Trinitarian God, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit in one God. That's the Christian understanding. And God is inherently relational. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have been loving and knowing each other through all eternity. And then we're made in his image according to the Bible. And therefore we're made to love him supremely. And what Augustine says is don't detach your heart, don't harden your heart, don't say, oh, I guess it's not out there and turn yourself into something hardened. No, the problem is not that you love too much. The problem is that you don't love God more than anything else. Don't love anything less, love God more. And when you love God supremely, then and only then does the contentment start to come. Or to put it this way, St. Augustine says only love of the immutable will bring tranquility. If you love anything that you can lose, anything in this world, number one, it won't be big enough to fill your heart. Your heart's deeper than you know. And number two, it's too fragile. One of the things that my wife and I know is that we've got three sons, we've got daughters-in-law, we've got grandchildren, we've got, our, we've got a loving family, and we know that even if you're lucky enough, even if you're fortunate enough to live a long time, if you do live a long time, you will see every other person that matters to you in the ground. And you're the fortunate one because you have a long life. And if all the source of contentment and love is your family, that's, a, that's intolerable. Augustine says only if you love God more than you love anything else will your heart not always be broken or you'll be hardening it in order to deal with, uh, with, with, with how it tears you up. If you love anything more than you love God, you've got to love God supremely because it's the only thing that can't be taken from you. And only when you love him supremely does everything else go into order. And instead of looking to these things as the deepest source of your contentment, you can enjoy them for what they are. Instead of looking at, at money as the way that you get contentment or your career as the way you get contentment, it just becomes work, a great way to use your gifts. It just becomes money, a great way to supply your family. It doesn't become your source of contentment. He is. Now here's where we come at the end. If you say, so you're telling me I just need to have an experience of God. I just have to experience God. No. I happen to know that if I just tell myself, okay, you need to love God more than you love Kathy. You need to love God more than you love your career. You need to love God. You just need to love God. That doesn't work. 
Does your heart work like that? Just tell it what to do? No. Here's what you do. Jesus Christ does not say, I give you the bread of life. I have this wonderful bread. I have this spiritual power. I have this connection with God, and I'm the dispenser of it. Come to me, and I'll dispense it to you, and I'll give you this wonderful feeling. No. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Oh. You know, outside of salt and a couple of minerals, everything that you eat has died that you may live. Every single thing you eat has died that you might live. That's how it works. Substitutionary sacrifice. The plant died. And if you're eating bread, not only did the grain die, but the bread has to be broken into pieces. If the bread is, it stays whole, you starve and you fall apart. Or the bread is broken to pieces and you take it in and then you live. And when Jesus Christ says, I'm the bread of the world, I'm the bread of life, this is my body broken for you. Here's what he's saying. I am God become breakable. I am God become killable. I'm God become vulnerable. And I've come to earth to die on the cross for your sin. You say, sin? Look, if God really did make you, and if he keeps you alive every minute, what do you owe him? You owe him love. If you were to take a child and raise that child up and work your fingers to the bone to send that child to college, and afterwards the child sent you a Christmas card occasionally, hardly gave you the time of day, that's wrong. It's wrong, is it not? Because that child, in a sense, owes you not just deference, but love. And of course, it would be far greater for God. And the fact that we don't live for God and we don't love him supremely is wrong. Much more wrong than that would be of a child to a parent. And the only way for God to reestablish the relationship is just like you. If someone wrongs you and you forgive them, you absorb the debt or you make them pay. If somebody comes to your house has a party, breaks, breaks your furniture, they can say, oh, I'm sorry, let me pay for it. If you say, no, 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 I'll pay for it. I forgive you. You see, if something wrong has been done, you need to pay for it or the person needs to pay for it. If God's going to forgive you, there's a debt to be paid. And Jesus Christ says, I have come that you might live. I'm broken so you can be whole. And only if I see him doing that does that change my heart. You'll never get contentment unless you see that, unless you see that love. You can't force your heart to love. And just a kind of God in the air, a God of love, an abstract God, that'll never change your, this will change it. And this will begin to give you it. Uh, Jan Martel wrote The Life of Pi some years ago. It became a, uh, a movie that I did not understand. But it's about, a, it's about Pi, and Pi is a character who's exploring various religions, and at one point, he's leaning toward Hinduism. He's thinking of becoming a Hindu, but then he talks to a, a Catholic priest, and the priest starts to tell about the gospel story, about Jesus Christ coming to earth and dying on the cross for our sins. And this is what Pi says when he hears the gospel story. He says, that a god should put up with adversity, I could understand. The gods of Hinduism face their fair share of thieves, bullies, kidnappers, and usurpers. What is the Ramayana but the account of one long bad day for Rama? Adversity? Yes. Reversals of fortune? Yes. Treachery? Yes. But the cross? Humiliation? Death? 
I couldn't imagine Lord Krishna consenting to be stripped naked, whipped, mocked, dragged through the streets, and to top it off, crucified, and at the hands of mere humans to boot. I'd never heard of a Hindu god dying, but divinity should not be blighted by death. It's wrong. It was wrong of this Christian god to let his avatar die. That's tantamount to letting a part of himself die. For if the god, if God the Son is to die, it cannot be fake. If God on the cross is God shamming a human tragedy, it turns the passion of Christ into the farce of Christ. The death of the Son must be real, Father Martin assured me that his death was. But once a dead God, always a dead God, even resurrected, the Son must have the taste of death forever in his mouth. The Trinity must be tainted with the taste of death. There must be a certain stench at the right hand of God the Father. The horror must be real. Why would God wish that upon himself? Why not leave death to the mortals? Why make dirty what is beautiful? Why spoil what is perfect? Love. That was Father Martin's answer. That's where your contentment lies, knowing that 